Back in the early days of television, I'm talking from the 50s all the way to the 70s, advertisers could expect to earn somewhere in the neighborhood of $2 for every $1 that they spent on television advertising. A good deal of research has been conducted to determine why this is the case, and multiple theories exist, all of which are defensible to some degree. But back then, and I say that because this seems to be less the case today, but back then in particular, it seemed as if consumers trusted brands that were willing and able to spend the money on TV ads more than their competitors because it was assumed that, well, if this brand can afford the high costs associated with TV advertising, they must be doing pretty well. They must have real faith in their product, too if they're willing to spend that much money to produce and broadcast a television commercial. I'd probably better go with them instead of with that other brand that doesn't seem to have the same faith in what they're selling, or perhaps the same resources to invest in making a quality product. The same general concept was, and is, also true within financial institutions. When a bank is headquartered in a great big building, with a lavish lobby filled with gilded railings and fancy carpets. They're demonstrating in a very tangible way that they're doing well. They've got money. They're demonstrating their credibility as a financially sound institution. That's apparently reassuring to people who might be considering putting their money in that bank. Fewer people, it's presumed, want to entrust a bunch of money that they want to protect to a bank that's located in a shack on a dangerous road in a bad part of town. We can see this same performative tendency in the biological world as well. A peacock presents its elaborate tail feathers because those tail feathers are a representation of, or said another way, a stand-in for biological fitness. Look at me, a fine set of tail feathers proclaim. I'm a good bet if you want to have healthy pea chicks. And yes, by the way, baby peacocks are called pea chicks, while male peacocks are called pea fowl, and female peacocks are called pea hens. The term peacocking is sometimes used when referring to banks that attempt to show their wealth by building lavish lobbies, or when describing people who attempt to fluff their desirability as a mate by wearing fancy clothes or driving flashy cars. This performative process is also sometimes referred to as pronking or stotting, which is a type of peacocking seen primarily in springbok and other antelope breeds who will jump into the air as high as possible to demonstrate their physical fitness to potential mates or to potential predators. The message in both cases being, look at how physically fit I am. You probably want to have babies with me. Or alternatively, you probably don't want to waste your time and energy trying to chase me because I am fit as hell. But all of these examples tie back to another term that comes to us from the world of signaling theory, which itself started out as a biological study of how individual organisms communicate things within their own species and to other species with which they come into contact. Peacocking and pronking are both direct offshoots of signaling theory. 
But as tends to be the case, economists and marketers later picked up on this idea to utilize within economics and advertising. This is super common, by the way. Anytime something is learned about how biological organisms behave, there will be someone out there trying to use that information to manipulate the behaviors of humans to make them buy more stuff. So watch out for that. There are a lot of interesting side paths to investigate if you find yourself wanting to go down the rabbit hole of topics like the handicap principle and the effectiveness of signaling in different environments for different organisms. But the direction I want to take this conversation for now is toward the world of social media, namely into a subtopic of signaling theory called virtue signaling. Virtue signaling as its name implies, involves communicating your virtues, sometimes to others within your tribe, your existing clique, and sometimes to the world as a whole, taking a scattershot approach, hoping that the relevant parties, whomever they might be, receive your message. In its original form, virtue signaling was generally used within religious and other ideologically focused groups. You would demonstrate your allegiance to a particular set of beliefs, or to a certain set of moral principles, by living in a particular way, by walking the walk, not just talking the talk. In recent years, though, the term has taken on a different, more pejorative connotation, especially online, and when used by political commentators on any medium, the term virtue signaling now typically implies that the person doing the signaling is being dishonest, or at the bare minimum they're being performative, meaning they are trying to act as if they are something, or as if they believe something, but they are not what they're trying to seem to be. Or in some cases that the person doing the signaling is doing a whole lot of talking, but not much walking. Related terms that are relevant here are slacktivism, clicktivism, and armchair revolutionary, all terms that refer to people who are willing to share and like articles that present a certain point of view, or to hold court from their recliner on topics of the day, but who are not willing to lift a finger beyond all that talking and clicking to enact the view to which they're signaling their allegiance. Another related term that's become a little bit dated, but which means roughly the same thing, is champagne socialist, which refers to people who talk a big game about how the common man needs to be taken better care of, all while living a lavish lifestyle and personally doing nothing beyond talking to help move the world in that direction. Again, this term is a little bit more specific and it isn't terribly common anymore, but it is fairly evocative all the same. Of late, the term virtue signaling has become almost a joke in online spaces, in large part because of who has been using it. In my mind, this term is taking a similar track to the current calls for freedom of speech by people who seem to think that freedom of speech means freedom from social consequences for saying truly dumb and offensive things. Some of the loudest voices shouting for free speech on Twitter, for instance, are either bots or people who tweet like bots and who alternate between posting angry racial slurs accompanied by violent threats and calls to arms to protect free speech. So in this case, the character of the people defending free speech 
make it more difficult for the people, myself included, who are genuinely worried about what happens when we stifle free speech in areas where open discussion is warranted. At the moment, however, it's incredibly difficult to have a rational discussion about that topic because it's difficult for anyone who wishes to have that discussion to differentiate themselves from the bigots who are presenting superficially similar arguments everywhere you look. So this applies to virtue signaling in that those who are using the term like a cudgel against their ideological enemies, generally it's some flavor of the so-called alt-right, using it against members of the left, but that's not exclusively the case. The people using it in this way don't seem to realize that they themselves are virtue signaling by calling out others for virtue signaling. They are signaling to their own people that they are online warriors who are willing to combat the online warriors from the other side, and in doing so, they are willing to protect their ideology from the other side's ideology. The irony here seems to be lost on most of the people flinging this term around willy-nilly, but the damage is done to it regardless. Which is a shame, because just as with free speech, I personally think that this is a discussion worth having. I think that slacktivism, or virtue signaling, or whatever you want to call it, is an important tendency to be aware of, especially when it comes to looking at our own actions and the actions of our own in-group, and figuring out if we're living in accordance with what we say we believe, or if we are just talking and posturing and not getting much done. If we are champagne socialists for whatever cause we think that we are supporting. And I'm not the only person who thinks this, who thinks that virtue signaling as a concept has been or is being ruined by angry trolls on the internet. Sam Bowman of the Adam Smith Institute wrote a scathing piece about how the term is being used today, calling it a misuse of a valuable term that, quote, encourages lazy thinking, end quote. David Shriat Madari from The Guardian wrote that its overuse as an ad hominem attack during political debates has turned it into a meaningless buzzword. And Tanya Gold wrote in The New Statesman that, quote, people who accuse others of virtue signaling are trying to stigmatize empathy, end quote. Interestingly, there have even been arguments that virtue signaling within a particular group can keep that group from achieving their goals. Helen Lewis wrote that the Labour Party in the UK lost the 2015 general election because the desire to be perceived as holding the most virtuous of opinions, like, for example, a hard-aligned stance on nuclear disarmament, which is generally considered to be a hardcore politically left ideal, in the UK, not necessarily an achievable, mainstream, realistic goal to the majority of the population. And so taking such presumably ideologically pure stances can lead candidates to become out of touch with normal voters who have more grounded and immediate concerns and who are not so keen on the extremes that are being presented to them. So in trying to be the most beautiful peacock, the most ostensibly morally pure representation of a set of ideals, they accidentally forget to do other non-tail-feather-related things that are necessary for survival. It's easy to understand why things like virtue signaling have become so common in the age of always-on, always-accessible social networks. 
There's a far larger audience to perform for, and every moment of every day is an opportunity to be performative. What's more, we're often judged and ranked and scored and liked based on how pure we can be, according to whichever standards our in-group determines to be the correct standards for us at the moment. At its root, virtue signaling is about demonstrating that we as individuals adhere to and support the spread of certain norms, things that we've decided, or rather, usually, that someone has decided for us, are good and pure and worth perpetuating. And that feeds nicely into what I want to talk about today. Norms, how they emerge, how they change, and how we perceive that change as it happens over time. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start with today comes from The Atlantic, and it's entitled Ride-Hailing Apps Are Clogging New York's Streets. The crux of this piece is that the average speed for cars traveling in New York City has decreased since 2010, dropping by about 15% to its current rate of about 6 miles per hour. That's a little over nine and a half kilometers per hour for you listeners who live outside the U.S. who have rational systems of measuring things like that. This slowdown results in more than just the loss of a few minutes or a whole lot of minutes from a person's productive day. The transportation analysis firm Inrics says that the slow traffic conditions in New York City drain about $17 billion from New York City's economy each year, which, to put that number in perspective, is just shy of the gross domestic product of Iceland. So, a small country's worth of money is being lost each year because of the horrible traffic conditions in this one, granted quite packed and expensive to live in, city. This seems like the type of thing that you might want to try to solve using some kind of clever technological gadget or utility, right? That was part of the pitch behind expanding ride-hailing services in the area. The theory was that more ride-hailing options would result in fewer people owning and driving their own cars, which would remove a lot of the cars from the road, which would reduce traffic levels. What happened instead, it would seem, is that more people who would typically walk or take mass transit, like the subway or bus system, are instead taking private ride-hailing cars. Uber, Lyft, Via, and other such services are adding more cars to the road rather than removing them. Now, these services are not the only new variables at play here. The population of New York City has increased by 4% since 2010, so the number of cars on the road was bound to climb at least a bit, either way. But there are data that indicate ride-hailing services bear a large share of the responsibility for the increased congestion. From 2013 to 2017, total passenger trips, that's car trips where you ride in the back seat and someone else drives, so this number includes taxis, increased by 15%. But at the same time, the overall number of taxi rides decreased, so that 15% is essentially all ride-hailing trips. The numbers in the downtown area of NYC are even worse, with that particular region 
seeing a four-hire trip increase of 36% during that same time period, 2013 to 2017. So what's happening is more people are changing their travel habits to include these ride-hailing services, which clogs the streets and reduces the use, and as a consequence, the funding, for the mass transit system, which in turn leads more people to give up on those declining services and opt for ride-hailing options instead more of the time. And on top of that, with each new ride-hailing service driver comes an increase in what's called deadheading, which essentially means ride-hailing drivers who don't have a passenger at the moment and who are just driving around, taking up space on the road, making traffic worse without getting paid or getting anyone where they need to go. This is a problem that extends well beyond the borders of New York City. Studies have shown similar numbers with similar outcomes and predictions in other major cities, including Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., and San Francisco, And these numbers are bad. They're not great for productivity. But I think at the same time, they do point at something incredibly interesting. The speed at which these services have been adopted is remarkable. And the fact that now, around the world, people feel comfortable not just getting into strangers' cars, but summoning strangers from the internet with their phones so they can get into their cars. That's just boggling. That would have been unthinkable a very short time ago. But today, in many places around the world, it's not just thinkable, but common. It's not even worth commenting upon. It is utterly unremarkable. The ride-hailing industry and the technologies that enable it are an excellent example of how quickly norms can shift and how we often barely even notice when they do. It's strange in a way to try to remember what life was like before Uber and Lyft and all the other ride-hailing services hit the scene, just as it's strange to try to remember what life was like before the smartphone, before the mobile phone, before the cordless phone, before the telephone. So much has changed as a result of these innovations. And perhaps the most important changes that have occurred have been in the norms that outline our lives. I have snapshot memories of what it was like to not have Google Maps on my personal device. Because my personal device, back before smartphones, it was a feature phone with very limited features. It was a decent model for the pre-smartphone days, but it didn't help me navigate Los Angeles when I moved there from Missouri, not knowing where anything was in this much larger city than the one I'd lived in before. So I remember printing off Google Maps, which had only fairly recently emerged to compete with MapQuest, which was dominant in that particular space at that time, and I used that to find my way around the city. Looking back now, it's difficult to imagine the state of mind I was probably in regarding that aspect of my life, because there was no alternative at the time. Printing off those maps seems ridiculous to me now, but at the time it was a little bit futuristic. It seemed way better, at least to me, than the way outdated folding maps that you would otherwise have to buy at the gas station. It would not have occurred to me to have something else, something digital that could update itself quickly and that could tell me which turns to take as I needed to take them audibly so that I didn't have to look away from the road down at a piece of paper to find my way. The same is true with ride-hailing apps, especially in big cities where fewer people have driver's licenses and cars. 
ride-hailing has become such a default function of many people's lives that, as mentioned in the article, they're actually now creating new problems. The norms have shifted, and so too have the problems that we face. And all without many of us really noticing, not consciously, as the changes are happening. We only maybe notice in retrospect. There's a concept that I want to introduce here that I think is absolutely vital to any discussion that touches on the idea of norms, and particularly shifting norms. The Overton window refers to the range of ideas and topics that are considered to be open for discussion in public discourse. This concept was originally described by Joseph P. Overton, for whom the window is named, and who defined it in terms of political viability, namely that an idea in politics might sink or elevate a candidate based on how acceptable the concept is to the voting public. For example, the concept of universal health care here in the U.S. has, for many decades, been fairly unthinkable to the majority of the public, in part because of the general level of comfort the majority of people have enjoyed in the U.S. these past 30 years or so, and in part because it's traditionally been framed as an un-American way of doing things. The fight with the Soviet Union from World War II onward kind of positioned the U.S. against anything that even vaguely smelled like communism, including healthcare plans that could be labeled as socialist. Recently, though, in part because of increased economic disparity and in part because of clever framing by the folks on the U.S. political left, stats are showing that the idea of universal healthcare is becoming more thinkable meaning more popular, but also something that people can imagine happening in real life rather than it being some kind of fairy tale. And a far larger percentage of the population feels that way today. The Overton window for universal health care then has shifted from radical to, let's say, popular. The original conception of the Overton window can be imagined as a spectrum from more free to less free. And these terms were used to avoid creating a spectrum that could be interpreted as a left-right political divide. This isn't meant to be a politically charged thing, though it is useful in politics. A political commentator named Joshua Trevino later augmented that concept by adding a rough scale that goes from unthinkable at both far ends of the spectrum to policy in the middle meaning that an idea has become so acceptable that it has been formalized into law. The widely popular idea that a person should not murder another person, for instance, is an idea that is smack dab in the middle of the Overton window, and it has, in most places at least, been formalized into policy as a consequence of that widespread popularity. So you start at one end with unthinkable, and then you progress inward to radical, and then acceptable and sensible and popular before you end up at policy in the middle. But then it's possible to push too far away from that middle point in the opposite direction, which then takes you through that same list of labels, but in reverse, back all the way toward unthinkable, but for the opposite reason as before. In the case of universal health care, You could argue the idea is probably currently considered to be a sensible or popular level concept on the spectrum, 
in the direction of less freedom, since it would be a universally prescribed system, so it could conceivably take away some people's healthcare options if put into formal widespread practice. If it shifts closer to the center of the Overton window, it could eventually become policy, but it could also quite possibly be nudged back in the less freedom direction, if pitched in the wrong way or cleverly framed by the opposition as something that limits the freedoms or options the majority of people want. It could also push right past the middle toward the more freedom extreme, potentially, if it instead warped into something that, for instance, allowed people to get elective breast augmentation or other plastic surgeries on the government's dime. This is something that, in some people's minds, even those who want a strong universal healthcare system, might feel like a step too far and which would therefore pitch the whole concept out of the policy range and into something less thinkable, and therefore less politically viable. This is a really useful concept to have at your disposal when assessing historical movements and when trying to understand what's happening in contemporary society, either politically or technologically. Many civil rights movements in many countries can be better understood. It's vital moments more easily categorized when we have the language of this windowing concept to use as a tool. Here is the moment when public sentiment shifted from unthinkable to radical. Here's where it shifted from sensible to popular. And here's where it became policy before, eventually, potentially, shifting back to mere popularity and perhaps even beyond the realm of thinkability once more. The Overton window is a useful concept, but it is not the only lens through which we can view the process of acceptance and adoption of new ideas and things. The technology adoption life cycle is a sociological model that allows us to label and track the process of public acceptance of a new technology. You may be familiar with this model if you've ever taken a marketing or business class. What you typically see with this framework which is also sometimes called the Diffusion of Innovations Theory because of a book with that title that was written by one of the developers of this concept. What you typically see is a parabola with a set of labels at different points marked along the bell curve, and those points segment the curve into different groups. The first group is innovators, followed by early adopters, then early majority, late majority, and laggards on the other side. There are percentages along with each of these labels that indicate roughly how much of the population falls within each group. Innovators, for instance, are a rare breed. They make up only 2.5% of the population. Early adopters make up 13.5%. Both the early and late majority groups are made up of 34% of the population apiece. And the laggards group is 16% of the total population. Each of these groups takes a different approach to the adoption of new technologies, and their labels are fairly self-explanatory in that regard, but let's go over them real quick anyway. The innovators are the first to try out any edgy thing pretty much as soon as they hear about it, and usually before anyone else, possibly even before there's really a market for this new thing that they're trying, or any real promise that it will pan out and become mainstream eventually. The early adopters are the first on board after that. Once a new technology hits the mainstream market, these are the first people 
to line up for it. They are often influenced by the innovators, and in turn, they influence the early majority, which is the group that waits a bit to see what happens before taking the plunge and making the investment. They want to make sure that there is a firm foundation for this new thing before they take that leap. The late majority generally have less information about these technologies, and as a consequence, they will wait longer to adopt them. Or in some cases, it will be a while before they even know about these new things. They're not necessarily anti-technology, but they are fine with what they have. And they don't get any thrill from having the newest, shiny, whatever. Laggards, the people slowest to adopt new technologies, are also sometimes referred to as phobics which in this case means that they are perhaps a little bit afraid of new technologies and will hold out as long as they possibly can before being forced to try or adopt something new into their lives. The Bass Diffusion model is similar to the technology adoption life cycle, though rather than being presented as a bell curve with percentages and labels, it's a mathematical formula that demonstrates the process of new technology and product adoption within a given population. Frank Bass, the developer of this equation, also contributed mathematical work to the book Diffusions of Innovations, which I mentioned earlier. One other relevant lens through which we can view this process is what's often called the hype cycle, a graphical representation that was developed by the tech R&D firm Gartner. This cycle is usually portrayed as a graph with time on the x-axis, so it's chronological left to right, and visibility on the y-axis, so the higher you go, the more visible the technology in question in terms of public visibility. The graph starts with a sharp upward parabola, indicating that early on in the cycle, the technology achieves high visibility, followed by a steep decline, not quite all the way back down to where it started, but close. Then comes another upward slope, this one about half as tall as the previous one, and then a nearly flat line off to the right side of the graph, which slowly, oh so slowly, creeps upward, a barely noticeable amount from that point forward. The first point on the graph, on the far left and at the very bottom, is labeled as the technology trigger. The top of that first parabola is called the peak of inflated expectations. The bottom of that downward slope is called the trough of disillusionment, followed by the more reasonable upward slope, which is called the slope of enlightenment. The nearly flat but not quite flat line that finishes the graphic is called the plateau of productivity. This illustration has proven to be remarkably accurate for a wide variety of technologies in a vast array of industries. You start with some new innovations, some basic science research gives us a new whiz-bang cool thing, and we figure out something nifty to do with it. We turn it into technology. That sends us upward, our hopes and expectations flying, the hype around our cool new thing shoots sky high. Then we find out that this thing isn't as amazing or useful as we thought, or perhaps it's just not fully baked quite yet. I usually think about the virtual reality technologies that we had in the 90s when I think about the trough of disillusionment. We kind of sort of knew what we were doing, but the supporting technologies to make it a real deal, high-quality experience didn't exist quite yet and wouldn't for another couple of decades. 
Then we slowly and more carefully work our way back up to a point where this new thing that we've developed is useful and well-built enough to gain broad acceptance and a slow, long, iterative improvement path follows after that. Different sorts of people will hop on board at different stages of a hype cycle. Likewise, some people will get caught up in the initial upswing for a new technology, only to be let down by that first gully before things become real and legitimate later on. Some people are early adopters and others are laggards. And we can all be different types, fall into different sociological categories for different things. I tend to be an early adopter for products that allow me to do my work better, but I'm a late adopter or maybe even a laggard when it comes to anything related to cars. I'm probably somewhere in the early adopter or possibly even the innovator category when it comes to some aspects of social media, but I'm a late adopter when it comes to anything related to phone calls or text messages. Those things just really don't interest me, and as a result, I am slow to know about or care about innovations within that space. We can also have massively variable adoption approaches to concepts and ideologies, in addition to the aforementioned technologies and products. I know people who are innovative as hell, perhaps even brazenly so, when it comes to their place on the product adoption curve. They always have the most interesting new stuff before everyone else. But some of those same people have nearly stagnant ideologies in the sense that they've never questioned what they believe and how they live their lives. Why should they change? It would never occur to them that there might be other philosophical options and points of view out there. It would never occur to them that there are adoption cycles and curves for beliefs as well, and that what they believe today was once innovative and edgy and perhaps even dangerous to the status quo, rather than being considered to be safe and secure and traditional the way that they think of it now. And that's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? All the things we take for granted, every last aspect of human society as we know it today, was once some weird new thing that the punk kids and their innovator friends were trying out. Freedom of speech was once the skin-tight genes of its day. National sovereignty was wireless earbuds. Agriculture was as annoying and incomprehensible to some people way back then as emoji and the lack of punctuation in text messages are to some people today. Which makes me wonder, what are we doing today on the fringes of society, in the edgiest of edgy spaces, that will someday become normal? What totally out there unthinkable philosophy will become not just thinkable, but common, maybe even policy? Which bizarre technologies will become the next Facebook? Which theoretical social structure will become the next capitalism? Which lifestyle choice will become the next married with a dog and two kids? Who are the intellectual and philosophical innovators today? And what are they thinking about and trying out? Which of the things that they're working on or considering will become common, widely adopted? And which will flounder, never finding an audience or purpose? Looping back around to that Atlantic article about ride-hailing services clogging the streets in New York, who could have predicted that a technology like that 
which only emerged in its modern incarnation eight years ago. In 2009, who could have predicted that its adoption cycle would be so concise, so brief? I remember reading think pieces back in 2009 and 2010, declaring that Uber was peak Silicon Valley arrogance, as if anyone but the deep-pocketed elites spending venture capital cash would download an app that summoned a private car so they could flutter around town, scooping up depreciated real estate from the real estate bubble that had popped the year before, sexting on their iPhone 3GS, a term and a phone that both came into existence that year, and probably talking about the Balloon Boy scandal, which is something that won't make any sense unless you were there, but I will link to some information about this truly stupid thing that happened in 2009 in the show notes so you will get the joke. All of which is to say that Uber and the many ride-hailing companies that followed were anything but a sure thing. Even the people who believed in the concept couldn't be certain how long it would take to reach a substantial enough audience to keep the thing afloat. It could have run out of cash before hitting terminal velocity, which would have caused it to combust before becoming a household name. But it didn't. And as long as they manage to avoid too many more scandals in the near future, they probably won't, which will mean even more issues that we can't predict, in part because of all the external factors that are at play like local laws, all of their competitors, direct and indirect, things like changes in the tax law, and even adjustments in healthcare policy. It's been shown that cities with Uber use fewer ambulances. All of those things, along with the latent uncertainty about new technologies, the adoption curve, and the exact shape and pace of traversing that curve, which is a massive and important unknown. These things all create new potential deviations in the path that this technology will take. And because we cannot accurately predict where the ride-hailing world will go next, all of the offshoots of the ride-hailing industry, all of the things that it touches, all of the secondary unknowns that branch off from that main trunk-like unknown, those are doubly mysterious. It may be possible to predict aspects of technological adoption with some certainty, but predicting the social consequences of those technologies, that's... I mean, people sometimes get that type of thing correct, but rarely more than once. A lot of the people that we consider to be oracles are only oracular once or twice, and wrong all of the other times. And that's because of the sheer number and volatility of the variables involved. It's not because those predictors of things are dumb or uninformed. It's because the unknowns are countless, and because we usually know less about the knowns than we think we do as well. Which means, in turn, that our norms, the things we consider to be thinkable and acceptable and maybe even legislatable, those change quickly and seemingly without warning. It's not just technologies like ride-hailing apps that pop up out of nowhere. It's problems like increased traffic congestion from all these ride-hailing app-funded cars that are now on the road because of the specific way and the specific price point at which these services operate. New norms have replaced the old norms. As a result, another norm, that of increased traffic all the time, has replaced the old norm of less bad traffic. And we can see these changes in norms everywhere we look. 
I remember when I left LA to start traveling full-time back in 2009, online dating was still a really weird niche sort of thing. My girlfriend at the time and I met online, and we usually told people that we met at the gym when people would ask, because online dating was broadly considered to be mildly unsavory, or even pathetic. The idea of having to go online to find someone to date. The perception in that space has changed dramatically in the years between then and now. I have to think pretty hard to come up with the name of a friend who met their last partner at a bar or through an introduction from a friend. Even folks who are on college campuses, which were previously one of the top places to meet a match, will now often meet other people from their campus through a dating app. And as a result, the popularity of these services, which is no doubt in part due to the relatively recent ubiquity of smartphones and in part due to an improvement in their services, online dating is now more normal and even more legitimate in some people's minds than meeting somewhere else. Now, I have lived in places both inside the U.S. and in other countries where both online dating and the idea of getting into a stranger's car because an app on your phone told you to, those things are not quite as common or socially acceptable. In some cases, this is because other conflicting norms exist, ones that will be trickier to dislodge because they're more convenient or relevant to local needs or because they're more entrenched in tradition. And in some cases, it's because the local approach to new technologies and services and norms, on average, are more on the late adopter or even laggard side of the adoption curve. The possible benefits, as they understand them at least, are just not valuable enough to give up what they've already got. Which brings me to the final point that I want to make here. Because norm adjustments spread at an irregular and uneven rate, the changes that occur in societies as a result of those adjustments are a substantial cause of inequality. Now, they certainly aren't the only cause, and in most cases, they aren't even an intentional cause. Very few entrepreneurs start a new business to hurt people who take mass transit or to ridicule those who go to bars in the hope of meeting someone that they can date. But changes in general attitudes can be byproducts of what their businesses introduce into the world nonetheless. Our personal and our societal Overton windows are constantly being shifted around us, and we generally fail to notice when it happens, except perhaps through post-facto assessment. It's easy to look, now, years later, at all the changes that have resulted from the introduction and widespread adoption of the smartphone and to pinpoint the many little things that eventually aggregated into big things as a result of that change. But few of us would have noticed all of these small things at the time, much less put them together in the way they eventually came together, and thought of them as particularly meaningful. But some of these things, whether we see them at the moment or not, do become meaningful, and that shifts the world around us. We come to think of these new things as unmoving objects in our lives that have always been there and always will be. Online dating feels a bit like it was always a thing at this point. It's so common now that it's difficult to remember a world without it. The same is true of Google Maps and iPads and commercial flights around the world and liberal democratic governments and agriculture and Abrahamic religions. 
But of course, that is not the case. Everything in the human world, all of our inventions and ideas that exist today, did not exist at some point. And before that, we did not notice that they were missing. We made it work. We had other stuff that existed that these things replaced. Our norms shifted, and we slept right through it. We went about our day, and we only really recognized what happened in historical retrospect. And the same is true in reverse. We can't imagine what will come next, what will replace everything that we take for granted today. All the things that seem so obviously correct and inevitable and unmoving, and yet many of these things will be replaced within a concise time frame. Maybe 10 years, maybe less, maybe a few decades. And it's a good bet that in a few hundred years, essentially everything will change. If the world keeps moving in the way it has for the past several centuries, norms at that point in the future will likely be unrecognizable to those of us who are alive today in the early 21st century. We can't know for certain what happens next, but we can pay attention and we can try our best to notice these adjustments, these changes in norms as they happen in the world around us and inside ourselves, our perception of them. And we can use this wider, more expansive lens to give us a clearer view, a broader perspective, a greater, richer understanding, so that we have a better sense of what we can do today to make now a better and more valuable experience for ourselves and for those who are living this moment with this set of norms alongside us. Instead of recommending a book today, I actually would like to recommend a website. Well, it's a page on a website that is itself a collection of links to other websites. The website Longreads at longreads.com is by itself an amazing resource if you're looking for good long online reads to take in. They curate lists of such things and they have an excellent curation team. And the particular list that I want to recommend today is called the Longreads Best of 2017, which I will link to in the show notes, but you can also just Google search for it and you shouldn't have any trouble finding it. Longreads Best of 2017. There is just some incredible work on this list and several of them I had already read throughout the year, but I enjoyed rereading them. I took several hours the other day just working my way through this list. There was some incredible writing produced and published in 2017. And this list brings in all different genres, all different types of writing, all different types of authors from all different types of publications. So if you're looking for a delightful rabbit hole to climb down and looking to lose a whole bunch of time today, I highly recommend checking it out. That's Long Reads Best of 2017 list, which you can find by Googling it or popping on over to longreads.com. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of this podcast at letsnotethings.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I am Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on YouTube and Instagram and Twitter and pretty much everywhere else. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright. And I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.